Welcome to the JDLSAT and Admissions Podcast. I'm your host and instructor, Jimmy D of JDLSAT.com. In each episode, we discuss key habits you can master to study smarter and save time to raise your LSAT score and your chance of law school admissions. You're about to hear the second part of my interview with Graham Blake of LSATHacks.com. So in this episode, Graham is going to discuss with us best practices for the game section of the LSAT, as well as key tips for managing test anxiety. He gives a lot of valuable information here. So you may want to even take notes. Obviously, you don't have to, and I want you to enjoy this episode, but he gives some really helpful stuff here. So don't be shy about grabbing a, a, pat, a pen or pencil and just taking some notes on some key things here, um, or even pausing if you need to and rewinding because it gives some really nice tips. Um, also, as mentioned in my first interview with Graham, uh, Graham was generous enough to create a study guide just for our listeners. You can access that anytime you like at lsathacks.com slash jdlsat. That's lsathacks.com slash jdlsat. I'll also put that in the show notes. Hope you enjoy. Let's uh, let's dive in a little bit to a few more sections, and I won't take up too much. Well, I'll take up as much time as you'll give me, but I will respect your time. We're good. Uh, games. So yeah. um, couple, a couple things I'd like to bring up. Uh, I always say to people, you know, um, games are really about inferences. And you, if someone's struggling in games, they're probably not making inferences or if they've made progress but they're not often they're not maximizing their inferences now on the one hand right great i don't want to oversimplify it it's but it's true i would argue you don't have to agree with me but it is about the inferences but then right but then right well how do i how do i how do students learn those in learn what inferences to make and especially given that there are some common things that you, you can look for but then again right like there's some common areas i can go to look for inferences but at the same time, every game is unique and there might be unique inferences to it. And so on the one hand, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing for people to learn. It's also a challenging thing for people to teach. But I just want to check in with you. Do you have any thoughts on, uh, well, one, whether you agree with me about maximizing inferences and two, uh, any tips on or suggestions on how to go about doing that, given that it's not always that concrete and sometimes the inferences are unique to each game? So just two clarifications. When you say inferences, do you mean just the upfront ones from the setup, or do you also mean on the questions as well? I primarily mean the upfront ones in the setup. Okay. And second question, when you say inferences, do you mean like, are, are you one of the, like, do you make a lot of scenarios for most games, or do you only do that on some, but you're trying to make a lot of inferences and maximize those, even if you don't have like scenarios one through four or whatever? Great question. And, and I'm so glad you're clarifying. One, I probably came on like a, ton of bricks with all these the, the way i laid all this out and two it's also important for our listeners because there's different um different terms that people use so again uh i do mean the upfront ones primarily but also going back to what you said sometimes we'll create scenarios or uh, uh, uh worlds or uh different um different uh yeah i guess some of people have different worlds or different scenarios or sort of templates that they'll make specifically yeah. And um, I guess what I'm trying, I'm saying, actually saying apart from that, I mean, I certainly 
think yeah. that whenever you can create yeah, so a template or like world upfront, it's yeah like, yeah it's so different. right and I'll, let me just say one other thing just for our listeners because I, and just i want to do right by them and i probably could explain this yeah. much better if i was doing it like you but 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 you raise an important point we're not always creating separate worlds or scenarios but i would argue you know broadly we're at least trying to make inferences up front that might turn into them but i specifically mean the inferences not the scenarios and the ones up front hopefully yeah, and that's, what, that's what i figured you meant i just wanted to be sure because there were like a couple possibilities there so so my view on inferences is that they're important in all games i think they used to be even more important so i think one way people can get good practice at them i came up with like lsat prep test 20 and 38 because those are the tests that like for complicated reasons, there were no later tests in a affordable book, so that's what all the students had at the time I started tutoring. Sorry, what and numbers those were games they? Are like twenty nine through thirty eight. Okay. Yeah, uh, and so those are like they're full. There's a lot more games there where you can figure out like everything in advance. I find there's less games like that nowadays where you just have like solved everything. Um, but there were actually a whole bunch, and that's a great thing for learning the inference process because you know you get one. It unlocks a new one, it unlocks a new one, it unlocks another one, and suddenly, like, everything comes from this one or two master diagrams that you've got. Um, so that process that I learned on those, even though I don't use it nearly as much because they just, they haven't made games that can go as far in the upfront inferences, um, helps make them, make them later. Um, the second thing is you want to look for the rule. So, <clears throat> let's see. Let me back up a step. I'll just say how I like approach a game. I, I like to approach it with like a few multiple reads of the rules. Mm-hmm. The first one to scan to see what kind of game it is and identify what's the easiest rule to draw. So if something's like says J is in third and that's the fourth rule, I'm going to draw that rule first because it's simple mm-hmm. and it sets the structure for the rest of the game. So I don't want to go just with the order they gave me. And I'm talking like a quick scan and this is after you already kind of know the game types. Then my second read, which is in tandem with this first one, is to just draw the rules I will make some inferences as I go there. But I have a, a third read of the rules that I'm specifically looking for errors or inferences. And one tip for finding inferences is looking where like something's mentioned in multiple rules mm. or like the same concept. So yeah, I, so either it's like the same letter in multiple rules or if it's the same concept, like, you know, some things are early, some things are late. Where do you get restrictions if certain spots have filled up? Just kind of like poke around and look for points like that. Um, and I, I like to divide things in two i like to put as much on the diagram as i can that must be true and the rest i put in a numbered list of rules beside the diagram that's like all the stuff i couldn't fit on the diagram but that i have to remember so um and sometimes maybe i only figure out two things but it turns out that you get to the questions and one of those questions like directly test did you make this inference or not that's one of the two things you figured out um, but the other thing that you do, and I think this is like, along with inferences, I think the other thing that's very important on games is not forgetting the rules, which sounds basic, but let me explain. Logic games are something that would be like supremely easy for a computer and are difficult for us because our human short-term working memory is limited to about five to seven items. That's all we can hold in our head at once. Mm. And the closer we get to that limit, the worse our brains function. So, uh, having to think about the rules even though they're simple you just we're not built for this so the more they're like right on the diagram so you don't think you just look at it or in a clear list and the more from reading multiple times you also just kind of know them like the back of your hand like it's no longer it's more i don't know if medium term memory is a thing Mm -hmm. but like it's not it's not like you're you're actively recalling you just sort of 
because in, I learned some language learning. On the way to long-term memory formation, if you view things multiple times, you'll hold them in your head about nine minutes if you view them two or three times within a two-minute span without actually working at it. Mm. And then that frees up that <clears> mental <throat> room. So along with inferences, if you just know the rules in your head or they're clearly accessible on the diagram or both in tandem, a lot more stuff will become obvious. And the very last thing for inferences, I don't always get them all up front, mm -hmm. but I use the difficulty of the questions to guide me because there's always uncertainty. Like, did I figure everything out? I don't know. Mm. But the difficulty of the questions guides me if, and I'm not talking about the first question, which is usually an easy acceptable order, but yeah. after that, if one is hard, that's acceptable. I'll skip it and move on. If two in a row are hard, then either I missed something or I made a mistake and I go back to the setup. And if I see a question and it makes me realize there's a new inference, I'll add it to my diagram. And like some inferences you can get that way. Like it's not necessarily a disaster if you don't get them all, um, as long as you're not too fussed about whether you made the perfect diagram up front. But I'm always looking for them. I've got multiple steps where I can potentially let them emerge. That's a great point. That's excellent. I want to go back for a couple of things. Uh, first, I uh, I actually feel kind of bad. I probably, I gave you a lot and you just knocked it out of the park, but I probably could have set it up better for you and for our listeners. I think one of the things I should have done is have us define inferences up front. And I'll give you my working oh. <laughs> definition. No, because I mean, you're, you, you're excellent, right? But, but like, and I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. Uh, I hope everyone's taking notes, which I encourage you to do. Uh, but but uh, uh, even defining inferences, I could do a better job of. I think a simple definition. I'll give I'll give this out, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree, or what your take on it is. Just to put all this in perspective, I like to think of inferences as unwritten rules. And when I say that, I mean right. They give you four or five rules after the blurb or the scenario. They'll give you like you know just like bulleted rules. Hey, Q is third, J is in group five, whatever. Those are my rules. Inferences are unwritten rules. And specifically what I mean is they're unwritten rules based on how the rules and the circumstances of a game, how all of that affects each other in the game as a whole. What I mean by that is, right, this is kind of going back to what you said, right? If there's a, a rule that involves two of the same players uh, or game pieces, however you want to refer to them, right? Like, you know, this, these each rule doesn't operate in a vacuum. Right, like if one says that J is before K, the other one says that J is after L. Well, they, you know, then, right, you're gonna have to work that in, or anytime, and it'll take us back. I'll pull us out for with a good way to think of this is law, you know, because after all, we are trained to be lawyers. You know, when every time there's a law that is passed or a legal precedent that's made, it doesn't operate in a vacuum. There are other laws on the books. There are circumstances in society, and so it's like, how do they all impact each other? So whenever, going back to rules, we don't see these rules just at face value. They're not that simple. They also affect each other and the nature of the game itself. And that's where I believe inferences come in, right? How do these rules affect each other and the nature of the game and the players itself? Is that is that fair or did I, did I make it even worse? I think so. I like. I, I think of them as like consequences that flow from the rules. Beautiful. And so like something something else that's true based on like the interaction of all that stuff, which I think is you were, that's what you were saying, right? Yeah, you just said it's simpler and better. Anything else on how to, on how to make inferences or maximize inferences? Yeah, so I think you helped clarify something for me when you said like, you know, if there's like J before K, K before L, that like J before K is an inference. And like, I hadn't thought of it that way, but like, it obviously is. It's like, that that is an inference. And 
I think what I'm trying to do in that process where I described of like, you know, you put some stuff on the diagram and then you list some rules. Everything on that diagram is the inferences, you got the rules left. And then once you make a new deduction or inference and you put it on the diagram, then if you want to look for more, what you can do is something that I call a rule scan, where like you look back at the remaining rules and you look through and see like what else is affected by this thing I just did. Because often there's like a step, step, step process where only when you make one step with a new inference does the new inference unlock. Got it. Nice. Nice. And yeah. I one thing, you know, sorry, I mean, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, the, the only thing I would say is anyone who's out there listening, right, this is a, uh, the, 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 the limitation is that this is a completely audio medium, so we can't put this out in front of you, but, but uh, feel free to rewind and uh, make sure you heard everything Graham said because he, he laid out some great points and um, and certainly take notes because you're, you're giving us some nice jewels. Um, yeah, that's right. I was hand gesturing like step, 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 hands in front of hands, but you can't see that. Uh, <laughs> but no, but you explained yeah, so, it very well. Yeah. So so one one thing I would say uh, is that like you know when you start the game, you got maybe like five rules. If you can get it down to two or three that are in that list, then the rule scan becomes much easier. And this also applies like when you got a local question says, you know, like if L is in three, what happens? You do the same inference process there and where that's where you can really do the rule scan where you just like check each rule against what you've drawn. You put an L in three, you check the rules, you make an inference, you check the rules. And then once you're stuck, that's when you check the answers. Nice. That's a great point. Um, and I don't know if you're if you're in agreement with me. I'm a big fan of local before global. Um and I'll, I'll make a reference to that podcast I did in, in the show notes if anyone wants to check it out. Well, actually, let me just check in. Do you agree with me about, aside from doing the first question first, prioritizing doing yeah. the local well, questions and then going to global? You, you may recall I said, like, I'm I'm good with, like, one question being hard. That's often the global one. So I I don't do local before global because I'm, I'm just, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but I can <laughs> just go, like, one at a, it's one at a time. Um, but I'm very quick to skip. If I look at it and I like in five, 10 seconds, like don't have any insight on the global, then I'm just like, oh, forget that. And like, it'll be easier later. But I'll, I'll glance at it because sometimes I do find the global is actually very solvable with, with what's already been given. Um, and then it's one less thing for me to track if I already feel I've got it, but very quick to skip those. I'm, I'm happy you said that. Yeah, about skipping in particular. Um, and yeah, like, you know, we, 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 uh, I don't know if we disagree. We could agree to disagree, but uh, but I mean, yeah, it, I feel like um, you know, people can do really well without doing local for global. But once you have that extra, I see it as sort of an insurance policy. I was I got to the point where I was getting negative zero on games, but then I discovered local before global, and it's just like, oh, now I'm finishing even quicker, and now I'm yeah. instead of con- occasionally get one or two wrong, I'm more likely to consistently get zero wrong. The other thing I like about local before global. Just my shameless plug is, in some <laughs> ways, it can, it can help me max. It can if I missed an inference because you you made a great point, right? You don't know necessarily catch every. You don't know. There's no. I always say to people, it's not like a video game where like all of a sudden something pops up on the screen and says, "Congratulations, you've maximized your inferences. You've gotten every one of them." It's just not like that. So you don't know when to stop, and that's a whole other issue. But if you miss any, sometimes uh, local before global will might help you discover things that um that are maybe i don't outright discover an inference but i'll notice the effects of an inference or it'll come about through doing local before global but 
that's neither here nor there. I'm throwing a lot at you, and you give us way too more valuable information than for me uh, to get caught up in all these. In, in my my my. No, no, I mean, I think I should I should try I should try a section of local before global. See if I can go any quicker. Um, because like, hmm. oh, it, that's one thing about the Elsa is like you should always be willing to like experiment and switch. And I also believe that like brains are different, so that yeah. like uh, it's yeah. I, I love that mindset. You know, it's like here you are. You've been teaching. Twice as long as me, and you have you have one seventy seven, and even now you're like, hey, oh, let me try this. Um, and it's yeah, funny, I never did. So like, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like even remember like I, like I was saying with me, like I was scoring great on games, and I heard about it, this local before global business, and I'm like, eh, do I need that? But I'm like, wait a minute, let me try it. And then I was like, oh, I like it even more. Um, but that's such a great mindset to just always be willing to try new things. It's how we learn, and, and it's a great way to teach as well. So um, uh, I wanna two quick points um you know you said something maybe a little bit early that made me think of this uh about but but the importance of right the limitations of our working memory and how we need to be able to i always say have these rules at your fingertips make them accessible as you were saying visually accessible and if you can memorize them cool i don't necessarily think that way so like what i do is right i just try to make them visually accessible and neat and organized which is a if anyone's seen my handwriting, that took some challenges, but I developed it. You want to be able to refer back to your rules. Um, two things. One, uh, like you said, if you could turn five rules into three, that's great because it's less for you to have to like refer back to. And um, something as simple as, hey, if there's a rule that I could build into my setup, like if they say Q is third, I mean, that's a that's a no brainer in a sense. Where why have that written out when I could just build that into my master setup? And so now instead of five rules, I have four. And if I could do that with something else, maybe I have three. So fewer things I need to keep managing, if you will, because we are kind of limited in our ability to do that. But I want to point to something else that's interesting. Maybe you've noticed this. Since this test has become primarily digital, I've, I've actually had some students that will say, oh, wait, I'm supposed to do a setup? I'm supposed to write stuff down? Or, and you may not agree with me on this, uh, yeah. but some students will be like, wait, you want me to do this in pencil? I'm like, yeah, because you can't keep this stuff in your head. You know, God bless them. Like when we were on the paper exam, by, your, you know, the nature of it, just, oh, I have paper, I have scrap paper, I have a pencil, I have to use a pencil for the, the bubble sheets. But now people are like, oh, wait, I should use my scrap paper. And, uh, yeah. but it, it's so essential. And so I'll say to people, and there's no shame, right? They, there's different circumstances, but you need to write this stuff down. You need to make it visually accessible because the more you try to balance in your head, the less freedom you have to do the critical thinking that's involved. Um, thoughts, agreement, I disagreement. Actually, I actually write down the question number and A, B, C, D, E, like on my sheet. Nice. So I, I put like the main diagram in the middle. I'll write the question with the A, B, C, D, E. And if I need a local diagram, I'll draw it right there by the question. So I have less eye scanning distance between my diagram and the answers. And I transfer it to the digital thing after but I do all my work, including eliminating answers on the scrap paper. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. And it's funny, but I'm going to play devil's advocate as a student, a student just for our, you know, do the right thing by our students, right? They might be like, I could see a student saying to me something like, well, doesn't that take up a lot of time? I'm going to guess what your answer is. I don't know. Well, I would say time it and see is <laughs> like, what? I, I feel like for any time it and see for any individual question, ah! it's like three seconds. Three seconds to write down like 14 A, B, C, D, E. And it also gives you like a micro break. Like yeah. the, the thing, you know, if, if you're if you're on full tilt the entire section, um, that that's not, well, I don't think it's the best approach. I think like little breaks help. Yeah. And 
you know, if it, so I don't write out everything in like 30 seconds beforehand. That's like too much of a break and too slow, but I'll do it as I go. Well, I'm still thinking about it. You know, I'm, I read the question and like, I'm thinking about it as I draw these things down and then I draw more stuff and I'm able to use the thoughts that I had. That's great. You know, it's fun when we were on the paper exam and we had bubble sheets, I'd always, I would um, batch my bubbling because it did, like you said, give me a oh, micro yeah, yeah. break, yeah. right? Like, and I know this is, it's, we're in a new, new world now, but right. This, the concept is true of a micro break because I don't, I don't know if I called it that, but I like what you're saying because uh, some sort of break, because it's one thing to do this kind of heavy cognitive load that's involved with the LSAT, but just to be like, okay, I'm going to number things or I'm going to back in the day, I'm going to fill in bubbles. You know, it's, it's a little bit, it's less cognitively taxing. Well, you're doing something, but you're giving yourself a break. That's an excellent point. And, you know, I don't know if you would agree with this. My, the thing I always say to students, if they're like, you would that take time? My response is totally fair. One, I love what you said, see for yourself. Uh, but two, my, my whole idea is sometimes um, time invested up front saves you time in the long run or makes you less likely to make errors or both. You know, and, and I presume that what you're suggesting is just, yes, it's a little counterintuitive. It might seem counterintuitive, but like a lot of things with the LSAT, I invest a little time up front and it saves me time in the long run. Is that, is that fair? No, hundred percent. Like I, I always found it a bad sign if I was working on a game at the same time as a student and they started a diagram before me or like doing the questions before me. I was like, well, that's trouble. Like yeah. <laughs> they, probably, they probably didn't spend enough time up front there unless they, like, cause I, exactly yeah, probably like you know you like bare minimum you should take as much time as as the tutor <laughs> in your setup and if you're not you're probably going to pay for it at the back end yeah it's funny i see that with every section too right like if i don't invest in really understanding the passage if i don't invest in understanding my stimulus and we you know we might agree or disagree on minor things here but but yeah like i, I think especially with the, the the time element of the lsat they want you to get nervous and then rush and I get it. No one's denying that there's a time element of the LSAT. That's that's a fact, and we, we have to deal with that. But they want you to hyper-rush and then sort of um, – I'm at a loss for how to describe it. But basically, you're, 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 you're cutting out some of the really important parts, and then you get into the answer choices or the questions, and you're like, wait, what do I do here? Because you missed those important mm -hmm. steps. Um, excellent. Hey, I want to ask you one last thing about games. Miscellaneous yeah. games. And actually, we right. should probably define miscellaneous games. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean by miscellaneous games, right? So they're typical. Every, there's different terminology, but right, generally, there's a few basic types of games: ordering, grouping, in and out, you know, or some variation. And you know, we might have even subcategories. But I would say I define miscellaneous games as they don't neatly fit. It's not just a. It's not even necessarily a combination of grouping, ordering. That's 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 fine too. But a miscellaneous game does not neatly fit into a certain category. I would argue there might be broader elements, but it doesn't neatly fit into a certain category or subcategory. It's just weird. And then people see it and they don't know what the hell to do. And they're be they become more common in recent years. So I want to just you know, hear what you have to say, any, any insights you have on how to deal with them or anything at all. I think that's a, a great definition that they don't fit into a category and they're doing something unusual. Like I, I saw one recently, there's one on 93. I don't know if you would consider it, uh, miscellaneous or not, so that's not too much of a spoiler because like it, it's borderline here. But it's like it's the hardest game, and I noticed it's like it is actually uh, the type has appeared before, but it did something that hadn't been done before in that type. 
And once I saw it, the game was like three times easier. You could do it without it. But, and I don't know, you, you can decide where to keep this in if it's like too spoilery for 93. Um, but I think I think the main thing on, uh, yeah, miscellaneous is that they're just, they don't fit into a box. And they're breaking patterns. Like, I think what happened with logic games is people are getting too good at them. Yeah. Because what they want to test is like, do you have the underlying skills for logic games? But what some people are getting using explanations and repetition is they were just, they memorized how to do the patterns without really getting the the deep understanding. And so these miscellaneous games can just like throw you for a loop because if you're used to just like being hyper-optimized and it's all different, if you don't have those underlying skills, they're going to be harder. Um, so there's a few things I tell people about them. It's like, one, don't panic. Like, because <laughs> sometimes you get this reaction of like, oh no, I didn't study hard enough. Like, I haven't seen this before. But mm -hmm. like, and you know, I get this reaction myself, but like, that's what they're doing. And they can't give you something that's so hard that like, a skilled person in logic games can't do it. It's meant to be within the curve. It's different. You have to use new skills, but it's meant to be within the curve. I feel like I'm having a conversation with myself because this is, I mean, that is a, <laughs> I don't even mean that like, I, you know, I'm a big believer in humility, but I happen to like, I don't mean that as an ego thing, but like, this is exactly what I would tell a student and it kind of, re maybe I'm on the right track. It's reinforcing me, but I, I, I what yeah, you I, saying, think, I think it means there's something fundamental in the test that's like actually there and it's not just, you know, like whatever the teacher thinks we're, we're actually responding to something that's there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I always say to them exactly what you said. Don't panic or, you know, it's human. Right. I'm no one's saying it's but like the better thing to say is they want you to panic. I can't force someone not to panic and it's not always that easy for anyone to do. But if you kind of know that that's what they want then it's easier for you to, oh, they want to get that rise out of me. But I mean, I would argue, yeah, like they, they want you to see it. They want you to panic, the test makers. And the truth is, I mean, you, you you got at this too, right? Like they can't give you anything that's that out there. It has to be built into the curve. And while it doesn't fit into these patterns that we've come so, we've kind of really, these well, it doesn't fit as neatly into these patterns or categories that we practice so much below the surface broadly those patterns do come into play and so the it might seem like oh my god did i miss that lesson nah it's just it's just different but the same it's funny when i do let myself not panic and then just sit with it and then then i'll see like oh oh it's not so bad it was more bark than bite and i'll find that okay maybe it doesn't fit neatly into a certain category but those broad patterns or frankly pattern recognition that's involved, you kind of see a certain logic to it. And then you find that you kind of unlock it, but you need to let yourself not panic or just yeah. give yourself a break and then let yourself look through it. Again, it won't fit neatly into that stuff, but the broader skills that you cultivate in games do come into play. If you just kind of let yourself stop and think and sit with it. And then all of a sudden it's unlocked and then it becomes a lot easier. But I would argue a lot of it is that bark before the bite. Um, but let me stop and hear more jewels of wisdom because you're 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 laying out some really important stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the underlying skills of logic games also apply to the inference building skills. Um, it's the category memorization skills that are at the window with these. Um, but if you built those skills, then you still got them and can use them. So. The first step, like I said, give yourself a break. Like that upfront investment you talked about to pay off later. Yeah. This is a great time to just like pause and breathe for 10 seconds or yes. so and collect your senses. The second thing to do is like focus on the basics. Like I like to say, you know, 
do the easy stuff first and then the hard stuff becomes easier. Mm -hmm. So, you know, figure out the easiest rule, write it down, think about it, maybe do the first question, maybe look at a local question, test out, like, have I, like, does this work? Have I got a diagram? Um, just sort of prod at it, like, as in, you know, build a diagram as you go, but don't feel too stressed about whether you've got the perfect ideal thing. Um, you want to know if it works or not. So if you feel that you've got all the rules right, you got them down, you've made a couple of inferences, give it a shot, see how it performs. And if it doesn't perform, then you got to come back. But um, that, that's what I would say. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, when you're pan another thing to stay on this, right, because it is really important. Um, when you're panicking, you're not thinking. The other problem with panicking is you're not thinking about the problem before you. I know it might sound really simple or obvious, but like I'm thinking about everything else. Like I'm like, oh my God, I suck. Or, oh my God, I didn't study for this. Or what am I going to do? How it's going to impact my score? But I'm not sitting and digesting what's given before me. So the more you can just kind of let yourself breathe, cool. Another thing that I do that I think this is so important. So like, oh, I can't stop panicking. Okay, well, maybe go look at another game. And then once you get that other game done, right? If this was the third game, go to the fourth game. And odds are, if it's not a miscellaneous, even if it's challenging, it's, you know, it's a little more fair game than something like a miscellaneous. So you get that one done, you come back here in a better peace of mind, right? And it's not, it's not so scary anymore. And you can think a little clearer, but, um, but yeah, great, great points. Uh, anything else about miscellaneous yeah. games? The other thing is that I tell people to actually like, you can take a lateral approach and actually overtrain on the easy games. Um, because like there are games where you should aim for like first time go through of like five to seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And maybe when you're repeating it, like three to five minutes. Mm. Um, and those are, you know, those are ambitious. Time, but I'm talking about like the easiest, most routine games. And if you can do that, like, it, because like if you can get through the easy ones really quick and you have like 17 minutes for this, this miscellaneous game, then it almost doesn't matter what you do because with enough time, you can brute force most stuff. Um, so over-prepare on the easy stuff that you can get through with this category memorization and you free up space and time to think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on a very simple terms, right? There are four games. If you have 35 minutes, it's not like we just divide that into four. Uh, you know, like you want to, you want to get the easier games done quicker without cutting into the bone on them. It's that finding that sweet spot, right? Like I don't want to do an easy game in two minutes if it means I'm going to rush through it and make a bunch of mistakes. But if I could do it in four minutes as opposed to five and still get more right, but save that time to reinvest in the harder games, all the better. Um, yeah. Great points. If it's cool with you, I want to, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, no, just a very quick thing about panic is yeah. like give yourself something practical you know you can do and that creates momentum too like if it's unlogical reasoning it's like what's the conclusion if you're on logic games it's like write down the easiest rule it's like it's like i don't know if you ever saw kill bill where it's like you know wiggle your little toe it's like the first thing um that you can actually yeah, rather than focusing on the whole situation focus on one practical thing to move you forward and that can help get you out of it too that's a great Great point. I'm glad you said that. It's funny. What does that do too, right? Like I remember going, I'm going to go back to what I was saying before. Um, when we're panicking, what are we doing? We're not thinking about the task at hand. We're thinking about anything but it. And I can't solve this problem if I don't think about the task at hand, right? So with what you're suggesting, I mean, I, there's a lot of benefits. There's so many reasons what you're suggesting is, is, is a smart way to do it, right? But even on a, on, a, on a simplest level, right? What am I doing? I'm beginning to stop thinking about what's bothering me. And I'm beginning to think about 
right? The task at hand, even on a small level. And here's the other cool thing. If I'm thinking about the task at hand, if I'm thinking about finding the main conclusion, what am I not doing? I'm not panicking, right? So it, yeah. it kind of, it starts you on that path and then you build momentum. Excellent point. I'm so glad you shared that. And actually that brings me into, well, I'm sorry, was there something else you want to add? That that brings me to another thing I meant to ask you earlier. This is a perfect place to do it. Just certainly games, but just overall, overall, one of the things I hear from students a lot in recent years is anxiety and how to deal with anxiety. And, you know, I, I think it's especially relevant because like you said earlier on, the underlying stuff is simple, but they make it more complex. And that's sort of the nature of it. You're solving this puzzle, but, um, the more people experience fear and anxiety, totally natural human emotions, the harder it is for us to think. And so it is something that's sort of capitalized on this test, but people are feeling it more and more now. Um, it's probably there's a pressure of this. There's there, there was the lockdowns for a while and, you know, just things in general, but anxiety in general, it's a common thing I hear from students and there isn't, I have certain solutions, but there isn't always an easy solution. So I'm curious, is there anything that you think is helpful, uh, for students to know about how to deal with anxiety just broadly on the exam? Yeah, definitely. And this is so common. Like it, it has definitely increased with the online LSAT after the pandemic. Like I had seen like a lot more of it than I used to. So if you're dealing with this, you're not alone. Um, I find there's like two broad types of anxiety. Um, and the solution and, you know, the solutions are going to be personal too, but like the broad solutions were going to depend on the type. The first type is like, you don't generally have anxiety. But in certain high pressure situations, such as LSAT test day, then you do. And the second type would be you have a more generalized anxiety that can sometimes interfere with day to day life. Um, so and that also extends to the LSAT. So I'm going to talk about the first one first, because that's more contained. Um, in that case, what's going on with, with like anxiety generally is that it's uh, a fight, flight or freeze response. Um, it's like the body's reaction to a perceived imminent threat, such as a bear attack, <laughs> where the body then shuts down all the higher processes of reasoning. It shuts down hunger, it shuts down digestion, it shuts down like all kinds of things to deal with a threat and decide to fight it, to run away, or to just sit there frozen and hope it doesn't see us. And this instinct has kept us alive over millions of years, but it's utterly inappropriate to a set of questions on a page. And but it's all like it's all the body's got for what it's feeling. So what's generating that generally is that the brain has interpreted the LSAT as an actual life or death imminent life or death imminent response that's actually gonna, you know, take a swipe at you and claw you out or something. Um so the way I tell people if if you're in the first group that like you just get in these high stress situations is contextualize it to reduce the stress so that your body ceases to view it as a life or death threat. And this is a complicated process because you can't just say to your brain, the LSAT is not going to kill me. Don't be anxious. And the brain's like, okay, like, you know, you, you can't, you can't just mm. talk to your brain like that. So what you want to do is like, think about an, a personal narrative of like, what happens if you don't get a good LSAT score? What happens if you are banned from taking the LSAT? You know, Congress passes a law, like you personally are forbidden from taking the LSAT. What do you do with your life? What's, what's the worst case scenario? Because if this isn't defined, you know, it's, it's just like some, I don't know, like your life is over <laughs> or you're like, you're never going to get a, any kind of job or you'll be unhappy forever or something. You know, like none of those things 
for the vast majority of people are likely to be true. So if you actually flush out the worst case and define the LSAT as like a good option that you want to do, because you do want it, but that's not actually life or death and that you would have a good life otherwise, it can reduce the pressure. And it's normal to feel pressure. It would be weird if you felt nothing when you took a high stakes thing. You just want to lower it so it goes below the threshold of panic. That's excellent. I can't help I'm sorry. Anyone who listens to my podcast might know I'm a fan of Stoic philosophy, which is becoming quite popular right now, but I can't help but think of the technique of negative visualization where you're kind yeah, of just that's accept- 100% what that is. <laughs> yeah, you're just, accept- you know, <laughs> hey, this is, you know, this is the worst outcome. And I, I think you said something, why does that help? Because then you kind of realize that maybe I'm okay with it. Like, and so I have no place to go but up. Is that, is that kind of why it works? Or? Yeah, yeah some, that, that, that's a big part of it that like you can just, and you see, you see it's literally, it's not literally going to kill you. And that's, that's important. You convince your brain of it's not, it's not actually life or death. We're not being as, you know, no. we've evolved to not having to worry about so much about being chased by a bear, but you're kind of reminding me, hey, I'm not being chased by a bear. So I don't need to. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's like the big that's the big macro one. And you can like you can you can write it down. You can say it out loud to yourself. If you've got like, you know, loved ones you're talking to about your plans, say it to them. Just like try a bunch of mediums because like the brain's hard to communicate to. So like different mechanisms might make it sink in better um, and really just flesh it out. So that's the macro thing. On the micro thing, there's also some tools. And this one also applies to like the people with more generalized anxiety, but it's also trickier. So I'll talk more about that later. Um, but the micro tools are more like noticing the anxiety happening and then short circuiting it. Um, my favorite one is like looking for signs of physical stress. Like, you know, maybe you clench your stomach, maybe you clench your shoulders, maybe you clench your neck. You notice what you've got. And if you notice that happening, take a moment to process what happened. And you can also try something called box breathing, where like you, you hold your breath for four seconds, exhale for four seconds, hold it, exhale for four, inhale for four, repeat if necessary. And it's those two things. One is it introduces an actual threat that's bigger than whatever triggered you because you're not breathing. That That's mm. like, you know, you don't have to go very long without breath before you're in real trouble. So if you get like a stressful email and then suddenly you do box breathing, this is by definition more of something your body has to focus on than whatever stressful email is because continuing to breathe is more important. Now you're controlling it, but it forces it in a way that's a bit different from mindfulness. Like it yanks the attention away from whatever you're focusing on onto the present, your breath. The second thing it does is it, it sends a signal to the body that you can't be under life and death threat because you're doing this little breathing exercise. If, you, if it was actually a bear, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't, you wouldn't couldn't do be that. doing that. Someone, or someone, <laughs> like you'd be doing something else. <laughs> um, so it, it, it tells the body, like, calm down, false alarm. I don't need you to do that. I can, I can deal with it. And then you, you know, feel free to think about and contextualize whatever thing happened. But it's like, it's just a, a, a signal to blunt that response. Wow. Not only, not only are you giving great practical tips, but you're explaining why they work practically. Um, thank you. That's, that's awesome. Uh, and I'm going to have to, I myself have to re-listen to this podcast to take advantage of more of this after. Um, other things you want to add about anxiety or, or is that? Okay. But I'll just say a little bit about the generalized one. I, so I'm not a psychologist. I don't have large expertise there. Um, but on that one, there's like, and you know, I, 
talk to a bunch of people with anxiety, like it usually isn't something that like you can just get rid of, but it is something you can manage. Mm. And the putting it in a managed way is going to help with the L7 with test anxiety. So there's like a few things. And some of these, some of these which apply to everyone generally, and some of which apply specifically. So like, if you're not already doing it, therapy can be helpful. Um, sleep is a big one for people yeah. with and without this. Um, I actually think it's crucial to skill building. And like, if you're not sleeping seven, eight hours a night, you're going to have a much harder time on the LSAT, mm-hmm. but you're also going to have like worse anxiety. Um, and the, the other big one is like, uh, finding some kind of like healthy habit that gives you both like a ritual and soothes you. Like this might be yoga. This might be exercise. This might be something with your hands. Like I've heard people doing like pottery or woodworking or other stuff, like just whatever it is for you personally, like finding something that like whatever else is going on in your life, you're doing that. It both is like, a, it should be like, well, ideally there's like a physical nature to it. Um, and it also like just a set routine. And those are like a few things you can do. And there's often also like some, you know, something in the past that led to this. That's where like therapy can come in or having like a good close friend where you can talk through stuff. And that's about the limit of what I know in that area. But I would give those a try and just uh, attempt to manage and improve, basically. I've used some of them, if not all of them. And um, and I, I've, I've seen some really great results. So thank you for fleshing those out. Thank you for listening. One tip to use your time with this podcast effectively. Take a look at the list of previous episodes. They're named by topic, so you can prioritize your listening based on specific areas where you need help the most. Again, I'm your host, Jimmy D of JDLSAT.com. Please do subscribe, share these episodes with friends, If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, feel free to reach out to me and check out my website. Again, it's jdlsat.com. That's jdlsat.com.